Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 78 of the podcast, the topic is the future um, of next generation marketplaces. Our guest is Gabriel Luna Ostroseski the co-founder and chief revenue officer of BrainTrust, the first user-controlled talent network. In this conversation, we talk about the results from building and investing in first, second, and third generation marketplaces. Is blockchain overhyped? BrainTrust, the first user-controlled talent network, and emerging marketplaces with non-extractive externalities and truly sharing control and ownership. The path and the possible points of decentralization in the next decade and beyond. Gabe, how are you today? I'm doing great. Great to be with you today. Right. So Gabe, uh, we're here to talk a little bit about marketplaces and you've got a, you've got a, a, a great starting point for that because you've been involved, uh, you know, in those uh, on various sides, I guess, you know, both a little bit as an investor and now as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, before that, you've, you've found and founded some marketplaces, right? Modernize and, uh, and a couple of, uh, of other things. Uh, and you've been involved in you know, in the sales side, on the investment side, and on the biz dev side of lots of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me how you, you got to really, you know, appreciate the, the business model around marketplaces so much and, and why you got to actually start b- building one instead of just investing in them. Yeah, sure. Um, so again, thanks for so much for having me on. So, you know, my, my marketplace business experience goes back to when I was 21 years old. Um, that's when I started my first marketplace. It was called Modernize. And it was a marketplace for home services. So the idea was let's make it really easy for uh, or let's simplify this experience of connecting, you know, a homeowner that wants a roof or a painter or a window company to get matched with, you know, a, a local service professional that could provide them estimates or quotes, right? Um, and, and the nature of that business is it's really fragmented. You have lots and lots of home service pros. There's not really a great way to find them and also to connect with them and to hire them. And so I started that when I was 21 years old and, and I was the co-founder there and, and grew that company. Um, actually it was just, just acquired, uh, here in 2020. Um, and, and then after that, you know, what I did is I, I fell in love with this business model. I fell in love with this idea of a two-sided marketplace and, and essentially how it could connect people and how it could solve for these big kind of friction points in markets where there was a lot of, uh, fragmentation. And so after I stepped back from, from kind of the day-to-day operations of that maybe seven years ago, um, I, I started investing and advising other two-sided marketplaces here in Silicon Valley. And altogether, I was involved as an investor and advisor for over 40 of them. And what what I saw or what, what emerged for me is, you know, these have become two-sided marketplaces with proprietary network effects have become the most dominant business model of the last 20 years across e-commerce and ride sharing and home sharing and, and kind of everything in between. Um, but they had these kind of two core problems that I felt like we were just starting to see the externalities of. 
Um, one was that they, they have really misaligned incentives. So they essentially extract value in the form of a take rate or a rake out of the transactions. And they take that out of, out of the user's hands. So it's like, a think of it like rents uh, that they're extracting or fees that they're extracting. And, and some of these can become really onerous. You know, Uber takes 30%, um, you know, Amazon's e-commerce marketplace takes 50%, right? These become huge fees that get taken out of the transaction that essentially go to the middleman, right? Whether it's Amazon or Uber or any of these companies, right? And, and that model is very good for the middleman. And what happens is that you have a, the, the second problem is, is this problem of wealth concentration. So in, you know, Uber's an easy target. You can pick on them to say like, you know, 10 people became DECA billionaires in San Francisco that were arguably already rich. And they extracted all this value on the backs of the drivers and, and consolidated all the wealth to the small number of investors. And essentially the riders, the drivers get screwed. It pushes down the, the average minimum wage. And it's essentially bad for, bad for society, but good for a small group of investors or founders. And, and we saw that kind of playing out with other marketplaces. And you saw this kind of discontent building. And, and so, you know, when we decided to do Brain Trust, the idea was there's got to be a, the next wave of marketplaces. There's got to be a third wave of marketplaces. And, and our fundamental belief was that rather than them being owned by the investors, they would be owned by the community. So, so you've kind of gone through uh, almost three generation now of marketplaces. Can you just be a little bit more explicit about yeah. kind of what the first, second, and the third generation are? Because yeah. I think a lot of us have a good sense of, well, at least the second generation. We think we yeah. understand those, al al although that's rapidly changing, right? With sure. COVID almost killed these second generation ones. But can you just very specifically say, well, what was it that characterized the first generation? Great. So, so if you think about kind of like web one marketplaces, like the, the, the probably the most prominent example would be, you know, Craigslist, which is still pretty dominant today. Right. Um, but essentially they were characterized by essentially consolidating supply and demand, bringing together buyers and sellers um, in, in one place. Obviously that was Craigslist, right. And they had a whole bunch of different categories, but it was, it was still the wild West, right. There was no trust, there was no escrow and like even still today, there's no like UI or UX, right, uh, to, to like make the process easier or, or less like friction laden. But, but uh, there, there are other sort of first generation that actually did get a UI, right? So that's not necessarily, I mean, there, there are more polished look, looking first generation marketplaces. Yeah, today. I just think it's, a, it's maybe a good example to use is like Craigslist. Then I think you saw a second generation of marketplaces introduce some new some new elements so they introduce payments into the system right as as like right. um they introduced obviously the use of mobile technology so that you could inter build new kinds of marketplaces right things like uber or airbnb or or instagram or instacart things like that so they introduced you know better ui ux they introduced payment then escrow services. Um, they also introduce kind of new technologies like like mobile to be able to improve the customer experience. And, right. and, and for adding those new things, they also introduced kind of the rake or the or the take rate, the fees that they started to take out of, of those, you know, of the transactions. And and those are the kind of the examples that everyone knows right now, right? It's the examples that we probably use every day where whether we're, you know, uh, 
hitching, hitching a ride in someone's car or whether we're renting out someone's room. Um, or and I think or, many of us uh, think of those as fairly advanced, right? I mean, for a while, they looked very advanced. And, yeah. and I think some of us thought, you know, that's the pinnacle of marketplaces. What's the next business model? But you're sort of saying that's not true. There, there is another generation of these marketplaces. What yeah. is it that would characterize this, th this third phase? Yeah, so, so first you have to say, what are the big problems with these, right? So the, the, most of them fail, these marketplaces. Um, most of them fail and they, they have to raise billions and billions of dollars to essentially subsidize one side and get them right. get the people to show up in the marketplace, right? Exactly, because um, it sounds like a fantastic idea to have a platform, but you have first have to build that platform yeah, exactly, right? and you, you need trust uh, you know, in at least two sides of that platform and short of that, you have to pay for the... Yeah, for, the, for one side. So the, the, the playbook is you go and raise billions of dollars um, in Silicon Valley and you subsidize one side to be able to get enough people to show up in your sandbox. Um, right. and, and that one like really limits the field of marketplaces you can build. It limits, of course, the, the operators that could actually raise that capital, right? And then it comes with its host of challenges, which is when you raise a ton of capital from venture capitalists, they need a return. So as the marketplace grows, they start to extract more and more fees on the backs of users. And so they're, they're incredibly capital intensive with high failure rates. And then as they grow, um, the users start to hate the operator as they extract more and more fees. So if you think about, if you say that those are the kind of the core problems, then the, the way that we got to this idea of kind of a user-owned economy or user-owned marketplaces was that rather than raise a ton of capital, you raise very little. And rather than hiring an army of people in Silicon Valley to, to essentially build everything and, and act as every single, every single part of a marketplace from marketing to community moderation, et cetera, you actually push that out to the community and you Which the first generation did, by the way, right? So yeah. that was also Craigslist model, yeah. yeah. Um, and so Wikipedia the, and everything. So you end up kind of pushing pushing out a lot of those jobs that traditionally would be OpEx costs that you had to raise capital for. Um, and then, you know, then, then what you end up with is you end up with the users helping to grow the network and, and helping it to become really valuable. And, and you grow a marketplace in a very, very capital efficient way. Got it. Um, and and when when would you say this this sort of model kind of became possible? Because yeah, I don't know if this is uh, central to your model or not. But your particular one depends on a implementation of blockchain on on, on top of this. I don't know if that's necessary to this uh, you know for for this thing to to work or if it's just very helpful. Yeah, you know it's a great example. So I mean, listen when when when. Uh, Airbnb was looking at going public, even when Lyft and Uber were looking at going public, they were trying to figure out like, is there a way that we can give some of these options or shares to some of the drivers, right? And it's like a day late, a dollar short, right? Um, and it was like, you, you know, it, it was very, very difficult, if not impossible, none of them got it done. Um, and so if you wanna have users strung about a hundred different countries, you know, millions of users across hundreds of different countries, it's logistically and regulatory and 
possible to do that with a Delaware yeah, and with the fee, yeah, with the yeah. fees and 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 especially when that yeah. each transaction is so exactly. small. I mean, you know, in Uber's case, right, a ride could be so short that you know by the time you paid regular transaction fees and taxes on yeah. each individual, I mean, you'd be so, ruined. So you just you can't do that with a share of of Delaware C stock, right? It's just impossible. Um, but you can do that with a token with, using blockchain technology, and you can send it around the world as easy as sending an email. So, in all you know, in, in all fairness to to Travis and the people that kind of came before us building other marketplaces, they, this technology and these implementations didn't exist at that time. And so, it, you know, we're coming along at a time when there's a new technology, a new kind of paradigm shift that enables a new business model. In the same way that, you know, uh, for, for those of you involved in, in software, it's like software used to be sold on premise, right? And you used to have these big server boxes in, in your offices. And then this guy came along and said, hey, instead of paying all up front and having everything on your, on your, at your office, what if you just rented it and you paid by the month and you didn't have anything? It was stored in this thing called the cloud. And, and until that technology existed, you, you couldn't have come up with that new business model. So, all right. So, so here we are. Uh, a certain amount of user control and user empowerment and user ownership, and it goes with uh, with that, I guess, a certain type of decentralization of, well, the ownership itself, but of of, of the entire kind of uh, platform, right? So it's it's distributed in its nodes, not just in the execution of the service, but but also in the ownership. Yeah. How? different will this model become and how far can you stretch this idea of user ownership so um i think i told you that i've been interviewing uh this guy who has created p2p foundation so this idea of an extreme sort of peer-to-peer -peer based world that he thinks uh, needs to be created right now because Precisely, we have sort of extracted so many resources, and the only way to kind of rebuild our, even our economies, actually, is to build on kind of this commons-based approach where we all pool in and create these resources together and then obviously get fair share based on kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, some sort of distribution scheme that that is more equitable based on either what you contribute or indeed, uh, you know, what you need. So it's like a kind of a, a combination of, of uh, some thoughts that stem from socialism with kind of some techno uh, distribution uh, schemes. But it yeah. is not just this liberalist thought that, you know, if you are extremely clever, you should never just deal with the middleman. It's, 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 you know, his thoughts are that there's something even more fundamental going on. What, what is your sense of this sort of third generation? For instance, your, your own company, how, to what extent does an employee truly feel like an owner and, and, and can they make a decent living that way if, if you get to scale? I mean, listen, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Um, but if I kind of tease that apart, I would say a couple different things. Like this is... Uh, my fundamental belief is like this isn't a this isn't a socialist project, right? This isn't a do-gooder project. This right. is this happens to be better for all of the network participants in the marketplace, and it's actually a better business model. So this right. is one of those things that 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 I look at, which is um, you kind of get that rare combination when not only is it you know better for humanity, but it's actually a better business model as well. 
Right. I, I think it'd be helpful context to just explain like, okay, what does brain trust do? How does it work? And essentially, you know, how does it compare to a traditional marketplace? And that, that kind of can shed a little bit more light or, or provide an analog for people to look at. Right. So, so what is it that Brain Trust started yeah. with? What what kinds of of uh, projects do you take exactly. on, and who who are on these various sides of your platform? Yeah. So, so Brain Trust connects technical talent with enterprise companies that need to need them to do work on large software projects, right? Um, and and that's not necessarily new, right? Like a labor marketplace is not necessarily a new idea. What, what's new about this? about what we're building with Brain Trust is, is a new business model and a new ownership model. So essentially most marketplaces, they connect buyers and sellers and they take as big a fee as possible out of the transaction. And essentially control and ownership remain with a, a small number of founders and a small number of investors, right? This new model replaces that big seeking, kind of big rent seeking middleman with software. So we use this term, it says like, if software is eating the world, blockchain's eating the middleman. Right. Um, and what we do is actually reduce the fees. Typically these, these take rates are 30 to 50%. We reduce them down to zero. And, and then we take the ownership and control, we actually give that to the users that make their living on, on brain trust. These tens of thousands of, of developers and designers and product managers on the platform. Um, I have a question about that. Yeah. Does that mean that if I were to take on a big project through Brain Trust, yeah. would I be responsible solely for the results, or could a client complain to you and say the project wasn't executed? Yeah, great question. So, so most of the stuff that's happening on the platform is is more of what we call time and materials, right? Like, so a a Porsche or a Nestle or a Blue Cross comes to us and says, "Hey, you know, we need." you know, these five amazing machine learning people, or we need these UI UX people to redesign a new customer experience. And, and most of the time it just ends up being hourly rates, you know, that they're, that they're billing through the platform. Right. Um, and, and they work with the client to determine what the projects are and the number of hours and that sort of thing. And, and essentially what we handle is, is the vet, vetting on both sides. We handle the matching, and then we handle all the payments and escrow and transactions and legal and compliance. Like all the, we do all that with software to essentially reduce the headache of, of connecting these people. And, and then what the, what, yeah, do you want me to continue on kind of how, how, yeah, yeah no, please continue. But, and then there's a 10% yeah. fee from yeah. the, uh, from the big, from the client side, right. not necessarily from yeah. from so the zero percent out of what the talent makes. They get to keep. A, they set their own rates, and they keep a hundred percent of the rates that they set uh, on the platform. We charge. The, yeah, I, yeah. Go for it. I was just curious because, you know, I've had a little bit of experience, you know, working with this model in in various ways. And, you know, one of these, uh, well, we don't have to name names, but, you know, these typical expert networks that are on the other end. So there's sort of two ends of this spectrum, right? One is these project-based sites that either do design services or somewhat, you know, not so advanced IT services. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have these more expert networks that are more phone consults and sure. much more higher end labor. You guys are somewhere in between. Is that right? Yeah. So I'll talk about it. So, uh, you know, our thesis was, Hey, when you drop, when you drop the transaction fees now almost as close to zero as possible, you, you enable a whole new class of transactions to happen in the network. Right. 
and you and you reduce the the incentive for people to try to go around the network, right? In traditional labor marketplaces, what happens is that any job that's bigger than 500 bucks goes off platform because you don't, you don't want to give a 30 or 50% rake. That doesn't exist yeah. in our platform. So, so what happens is that you have like Nestle, Porsche, Blue Cross, you know, Deloitte, TaskRabbit, NASA even, um, doing large ongoing software development projects with highly skilled talent. So like when Upwork did their S1, like their average job size was was six hundred bucks. Um, yeah. Our current is fifty five thousand and climbing right. from there. And and we're in the yeah. first twelve months of being like of being out of the box while in the middle of a global pandemic. So that you can see that that number is just going to continue to rise here. So it's it's um, I think what, what we end up eating is we end up eating these. I say high fee middlemen, which can either be marketplaces or agencies that are essentially marking up talent to clients by two or three X. And, and we're using software to do the same thing and saving people massive, massive amounts of money. I'm just curious, the problem, well, every business has the problem of, uh, of kind of branding themselves so that they get some amount of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that work with, with your business model? Yeah. Is it more the experts that you're branding yourself through and gaining visibility through, or is it, you know, just regular reference clients, you know, the first 10 clients then become your, uh, the example that you, you know, you throw on the table for, for the next 10 clients. How, wh- where is the, where are the proof points towards the client side? Yeah. I absolutely. mean, aside from the very clever business model that, you know, that does benefit, uh, I think t- talent for sure. You know, they, they would certainly see it. Very clearly. Yeah. I mean, so, I, you know, our job is to really make both the clients and the talent, the heroes here, right? Uh, these talent are, are entrepreneurs around the world that have chosen a different path in their, in their life. You know, they've, they've left corporate America or left corporations to go and strike it out on their own and, and build their own business. Right. And our job is to shine a light on these amazing people all around the world. And then on the client side, you know, our, our job is to show that, that, you know, one, access to highly skilled technical talent is the biggest competitive advantage in the next decade. And two, for most companies that are not in Mountain View, right, <laughs> or in Seattle or San Francisco, you are trying to access highly skilled technical talent that do not work for your company and they do not live where your offices are, right? Whether you're in St. Louis or you're in the middle of Europe or you're in Italy or anywhere around the world, these these pools of highly skilled technical talent are fragmented and live all over the world. And so if you really want to compete in the next decade, you need to have a solution of how you access that talent. And so, so what we do is we shine a light on the amazing companies and, and, and even government organizations like NASA that are using Braintrust to find the best people in the world to innovate. So one of the critiques, uh, you know, uh, launched at these marketplaces uh, from the political side is you know these are temp uh, these are temp workers and you're not giving them any more protection than uh, than they had before in fact and you're you know you're you know in, in the case of the second generation marketplace you you just uh, presented uh, the case yourself right uh, they're sort of extractive a little bit how how is that different here uh, and how long is are these projects in duration? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that is a very important thing for us to solve as a, as a society and also as a business community to really look at it. 
Um, but as with most things, they oftentimes get uh, distilled down to like binary or black and white answer for all use cases. Um, so I'll, I'll talk specifically about our use case, which is like highly skilled, in demand, like very, very seasoned uh, you know, software development and product development talent all around the world. So the issue of benefits is a really hot topic in, in America, as, as it should be, because we don't have healthcare for all Americans, right? And, and there is no portable benefits when, when people are leaving companies in America. It's a real, real serious problem. If you ask someone that's a developer in, in France if they, if they need this, well, it's, it's really not that big of a problem because they have nationalized healthcare. So there's both like geographic differences of what people need um, on, in, in different geographies around the world. And also when you think about, um, I would say the, the income earnings, like the average hourly rates and the billings that people are doing through the platform. It's a, of course a much bigger concern when you're at the lower end, when you're you know, 20 bucks or less. Um, but I don't think we have a single person on the platform that is in that range. Most of the people on the platform are $60 to $300 an hour. And so these people oftentimes have their own healthcare programs and, and pay, out, pay out of pocket for those if they're in the U.S. Um, and again, these are, these are people that are earning $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 a year sometimes on platforms. So again, it, it, it is a really important conversation, but you need to break it apart and look at geographies. And you also need to look at the type of work that's done in platforms and the average earnings per year on platforms to solve for specific use cases. And, and most of that is gonna be, I would say at the, the lower earnings of markets or marketplaces that are doing more commodified jobs, delivering groceries or driving cars, things like that. If you look at the, the the technology that you know obviously underlies a lot of what you're doing here, you know the the blockchain. It's it's a very hyped up technology these days, and it's very easy to kind of, I well certainly I see it in business plans that get sent. You know people slap on a blockchain component almost as if it's, uh, you know I guess it's the way that they would slap on that we have really talented technical people. And then you know you'd say, well, we're using AI and we're using blockchain. Yeah. I mean, is blockchain this panacea for for all of finance and for all for all of everything? And and where are we with this? I mean, you've had some experience uh, both with financing blockchain-based business models and now executing on one that has it as its core. Tokenization is one thing. Blockchain is another. Where are we with, with the technology and with the creativity that can be applied to this principle? Yeah, well, of course, a lot to unpack there as well. But um, I would say, without a doubt, we're in the early innings on this, right? Um, and I think that people are discovering use cases every single day that, that this technology can be used to create kind of paradigm shifts, um, I can talk about my own experience, which is that like, you know, when I, when I first got into this and in buying Bitcoin many years ago, um, I, I kind of got it, but the money use as an entrepreneur, the money use case wasn't as interesting for me. Where I started to get really interested was the potential for new business models and also how this technology could be used to essentially program new incentives 
Um, and, and most business comes down to like designing incentive systems. And so, so where I got really interested was, was how you could use, um, you know, this new technology to basically program incentives in a network and also how you could use this thing called tokenization, which is a, you know, a use case of blockchain to essentially represent ownership and control in something, right? You could use it for voting and also for, for ownership. And that, that was really cool to me because what it meant was that you could distribute access to ownership and control more broadly around the world and solve like some of the, the biggest problems that I see today, which is like, which is inequity in ownership and control around the world. So that's what I got really interested in personally as an entrepreneur was how could you use this new technology to build things that hadn't been built before that distributed power and ownership more equitably around the world. Uh, you told me when we spoke earlier that one of the reasons why you uh, ended up building your current company was that you really wanted to invest in kind of the next generation marketplaces, but yeah. you found, found it at, at that point, at least, you know, difficult to find uh, both entrepreneurs that fully got where we where you think we, we need to be going and, and also just the, the good ideas. Is your is your vision? I mean, is the, your experience different now? Have you found some startups or do you know, what are some other marketplaces that uh, either are going in this third gen uh, path, or or would be going there soon. You know, will we'll be going there soon when they when they just kind of look around the corner. Yeah. So this is kind of going back to your, one of your last questions around kind of the, the hype cycles of blockchain, right? So if if I zoom out on it, uh, actually, I think that the the hype is actually really good um, because the hype draws capital in and capital draws entrepreneurs in. Um, and then you end up with operators and people building new things that hadn't been built before. So if it didn't have that hype, it wouldn't have the capital. And if it didn't have the capital, it wouldn't have the draw for entrepreneurs. Um, and I, I still think that today we're, st we're still in a place where yes, that capital has drawn in entrepreneurs and there's been people that are, have been building. And over the course of the next 12 to 24 months, you're going to see a lot of the teams that raised capital in the last 12 to 24 months start to actually come out with real protocols, real networks, real use cases. And that's happening almost every day now if you're paying really close. You mean the, the guys with all these blockchain projects? Because I've, I've seen a plethora and, you know, almost every day for the podcast, I get people who, who do want to talk about, uh, yep. you know, some, some new blockchain-based uh, uh, thing, usually with a, with a new token and, you know, and, and that's all great. And I think many of them are going to go on and do exciting things, but I can't but think that not all of them are because how how could it be? Especially if the core idea is just to create, uh, you know, a coin. Yeah. I mean, listen, or a token. 95% of the startups that are started in Silicon Valley fail. Like, <laughs> that's just the way it goes. It. So, so it's not a bad thing. It's just the nature of what you're doing. You're, you're building something new that's never been built before. In some cases with technology that's never been used before in building new business models that nobody's ever built before. So like, that's a, it's okay to have a really high failure rate. But I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a few things that come out and create kind of paradigm shifts in the same way that like Salesforce did that for, you know, for cloud. 
Um, you can probably think of a bunch of other kind of like paradigm shifting companies. And then what that's going to do is it's going to, it's going to validate that like when you have real operators and, and the right capital structures and the right incentives, you can build kind of like, I'll say, I'll say kind of like era defining companies. And then that will attract a whole new generation of entrepreneurs to build things in this new way, right? Like Mark Benioff needed to go and build a SaaS, you know, build this SaaS platform and, and, and evangelize cloud. And then that pulled in hundreds of thousands of other entrepreneurs to go and build other SaaS tools and other SaaS products. And I just think that it, over the course of the next few years, there needs to be a few examples of like teams that do this really well and show that these things grow faster, become more valuable than Web2 marketplaces. And then you're going to have a big influx of capital and a big influx of entrepreneurs coming to build. And, and frankly, like we want to open source our playbook when we do that. And that's one of the reasons that Adam and I decided to do this was we wanted to be one of the first people that had that right mix of entrepreneurship, marketplace experience, and also kind of like an understanding of this technology. Mm -hmm. And we want there to be many, many, many other entrepreneurs behind us that learn from the, I'll say like us going through the woods with a machete. So you're going through the woods with a machete, but at the same time, you have to admit you are also quite embedded in, in Silicon Valley. You, you live in Napa now, so you have kind of extracted yourself to the, the very comfortable part of, of California that I like very much. Um, but my question is a little bit, you know, if you think about, blockchain being in the first inning and there are many more innings and it is a decentralizing technology and at least that's what you're using it for uh you know somewhat does this mean that these era defining companies could be truly not just one and the other outside of silicon valley but that we could be entering into an era where Silicon Valley becomes less defining, which almost sounds impossible even today. I mean, people start, people have predicted it every year, you know, just to go into history as like having said something prophetic, but they have all been kind of proven wrong because there is a concentration both of capital, mindset, entrepreneurs, and legacy and, you know, community yeah. of founders. Do you think that blockchain is powerful enough as a decentralizing principle that this will be the day when uh, there will be a day in the next decade even where European startups uh, can really start competing at that blockbuster blitz scaling level, you know, with, with Silicon Valley startups. And, and can there be other South, uh, Southeast Asian powerhouses that can not just one and the other, but truly as a, as a force can, can make use of blockchain, truly decentralize, find capital wherever it is and, and destabilize a little bit of this kind of hegemony of, of Silicon Valley. Is, are we there now or, or is that really kind of another decade out? I mean, I actually would love for that to happen. Like, I, I think that's a great view of the world where, where access to capital and, and like talent is more equally distributed around the world. I think that the, the place that we are today um, to acknowledge that is there's not a whole lot of places in the world that, that you could have using like Adam and I's experience, like between us, we've invested in over a hundred marketplaces and we've like started six. Um, and there's not a, and, and so we have a, a certain expertise that is, that is pretty rare around the world and, and even rare here in Silicon Valley. 
So you have, you have this density of talent with expertise in doing these kind of things. And you also have uh, a, an abundance of capital that will fund ideas that might seem crazy at the time. Um, and those become the playbooks that then get distributed around the world, right? So off, what you see oftentimes is like some of those category defining companies get funded and founded here. And then, you know, as, as SaaS has proliferated, right, and software as a service has proliferated, there's been a playbook that gets distributed more widely around the world. And now you see lots of, you know, founders from other parts in the world, you know, building SaaS companies from around the world, whether it be in Australia or Asia or Europe. So I, you know, listen, I, I, I have the battle scars to prove like <laughs> raise, you know, we've raised $26 million for this project over two rounds of capital. We, we've been here all our lives and built multiple companies. And it was, it was not an easy, it was not an easy thing to basically come out with a, a brand new business model. We had, we had people literally say, Gabe, Adam, we know you guys, like, we love you, but like, if you, want, if you wanted to start an Indian restaurant, we'd fund you. Just don't do this. Um, wow. and so, you know, we have, we have some scars to, to show for it, but I think, you know, our, our goal is to show that it's possible and, sh and prove that, that it, that they grow faster, become more valuable than traditional investor-owned marketplaces. And that, I think, will provide an opportunity for other entrepreneurs to do the same thing that we've done in other categories. We want there to be someone does brain trust for ride sharing. We want somebody to do, you know, brain trust for food delivery, brain trust for a, a bunch of categories that I probably can't even think about right now. So let's continue a little on this futuristic track, but take it also beyond startups. So you, you know, if you think about your client segment, uh, so the likes of kind of Deloitte and uh, Nestle and b b bigger companies, how, what are you seeing when it comes to their adoption of these things? They don't necessarily need to adopt these principles in, in at the heart of their organizations in order to, uh, you know, to uh, benefit from them, do they? But on the other hand. If they don't even explore these things, what what are the winners kind of in this emerging uh, state of, of of work? The future of work is yeah. a little bit of a misnomer, really, because you know you, it either is something or or you know what are we talking about? But but anyway, if you if you accept this term, the future of work, what is the future of work for for larger companies? Is it to is it to hire marketplaces and outsource a lot of their activity to? smarter sort of a hollywood based armies of project work just organized in in, a, in better and better and better frictionless ways or or is there something else to it that they need to watch out for if you are a deloitte what how do you navigate this this landscape yeah so i mean i just speak from my own experience you know when we were doing customer development and meeting with a lot of these large enterprises even towards the end of last year um they were all like everyone would nod Right. Everyone would be like, yeah, we kind of get it. Like access, yeah. like finding technical talent when you're in Omaha or you're in, you know, Michigan or wherever it is, like we're kind of fighting a losing battle here. Um, right. And we're trying to recruit machine learning people and product people, et cetera, in these places where they, they just don't live. And so they, they were, everyone's nodding their head and then they're like, yeah, but like we do butts and seats. Right. Um, right. And, and, and to your point, though, I mean, yes, they are your clients, but they're still not outsourcing their entire operations to any any org like this, or they're not organizing it on their own. Right. Yeah, so so they, this is a small experimental approach 
that they're using you or or all of these platforms for. It's not like any of these large places have said, fine, you guys are right. We are bad at finding talent. Has anybody come and really not just admitted that to you, but sort of said, you know what, five years from now, we will only be using your approach. Yeah, I think. Do you think um, anybody is there? So I'll, I'll talk about my experience then, where it is now, and what I see going forward. So, so I'll, I'll say that, like you know, at the end of last year, it was it was a slog to get to get some of these enterprises on the board, and and, and really the main barrier was this kind of anachronistic thinking around you know we need to have butts and seats uh, in order to be able to innovate or to build or to serve our customers or deliver our value prop, and so they were dipping their toes in the water, right? They'd put a couple couple of roles on the platform, but it was it was those were hard won deals. Um, and then fast forward to, you know, May of this year, um, after, you know, after obviously the, the kind of the, the, the first, you know, global shutdown, um, the phone started ringing again in May and June. And what we were hearing from a lot of these big enterprises was, hey, guess what? Like, you know, we now can't even get into our own offices. Um, that whole idea of like, we need butts and seats is completely like the biggest barrier to us using brain trust has been eliminated. And now we actually see that concentration became a risk factor, right? Right. Concentration of our workforce used to, it used to be like the benefit, and it became the hugest risk. Well, it's interesting, both concentration and and distributed workers are actually liability. If you think about automotive and something that, you know, that they have distributed teams in like every world market and they they have been doing kind of globalized coordination, that is liability. And of course, then the concentration is a liability. Everything about a big company that operates globally has in some sense become a liability. Yeah, so, so what we found was, listen, the, those people that were dipping their toes in, like now came up with 20 roles, 30 roles, right? So this thing changed overnight and it went from yeah. vitamins to painkillers. Um, and, the, and the business just started to take off like a rocket ship. Um, Mostly in deep tech or in tech projects or also beyond that in other roles? I mean, we, we focus on this very narrow but very deep category of, of you know, the software development roles, which, which happens to be like a, a $1.4 trillion market um, compound sure. and growing on itself every single year. So the nature of the problems that every enterprise on the planet is trying to solve for these days are increasingly driven by software, Right. Um, and they increasingly need to hire people that don't exist within the four walls, whether that be product managers, you know, UI, UX designers, engineers, blockchain architects. Um, and, and so so that, that was kind of like our experience now is that like we could just barely keep up or onboarding you know, multiple of these large global enterprises every single week. How do I see it playing out? Well, my experience firsthand has been that that shift of we don't need to have people in our office. And if we don't need to have enough people in our office, then why do they need to be 20 miles within driving distance of our offices? That like that opening of that aperture has been transformative for a lot of these enterprises. And then now what they're seeing is the benefits of doing that. Um, they're seeing that you, you know, for, for us, when, when an enterprise, usually they when they post jobs on their own sites, they, they have jobs aged for sometimes a month, two months, three months, four months, sometimes without even getting anyone that 
that applies. Uh, when they post a project on Brain Trust, 90% of them get five people within 48 hours. Right? So they, they see this like immediate change to the way in which they can deliver on their value props. Right? So they see this like wow experience around how fast they're able to source the people that they need to innovate. And then the second thing is that they're seeing without paying agencies and middlemen, their dollars are now going two, three times as far. So now they can innovate both faster and more cost effectively. And I think when you start seeing that, that's when the CFOs get involved. That's when the chief operating officers get involved and say, how can we, what other things can we decentralize? What other things can we projectize uh, to be able to, you know, move faster and innovate? But Gabe, there are a lot of marketplaces for talent. They may not all have a frictionless distributed business model like yours. They may not all be as lucrative for the talent, but for uh, other parts of the marketplace, there's going to be many players, isn't there, You know, in, in this talent game? Talent is a big game, right? Ta- talent is, is the game in a yeah. certain sense. How, um, I mean, is that just a treasure of uh, innovation. Like you could literally start a venture firm based on just any idea around talent management. And, you know, it's like a, it's a chunk of, of the HR pie, but it is really the crux of, you know, we talk about knowledge workers. We talk about making, you know, leaps. Everybody wants the smartest workers. This really is kind of a, it's a magical space to be in when you do find that balance of, matching talent but also making the talent more productive what to what extent do you guys engage on the magic side of this equation so in other words you match them and you take away the frictions Mm -hmm. but what about the work itself do you ever have the ambition that you would want to transform the way that people work together or is that is that kind of a different story that's just not part of I mean, the name brain trust implies that you have the brain trust, but do you think that there's something exciting other, you know, with your business or with other businesses? Or have you seen anything in group collaboration um, that has blown you away or that you think is going to, because it's a field that I've been tracking and trying to innovate in. And it just strikes me that it's so hard. Um, Many, many have failed. Many will fail. Um, What do you have to say about that? I mean, listen, I've uh, started a fair amount of businesses, have invested in a whole lot more. And, and the, if there's one thing that I've learned throughout all of that is that doing one thing well that works for both sides of a two-sided marketplace is incredibly difficult, right? So building liquidity, building a, a, a platform that people love and that want to show up every single day and keeping the incentives aligned that's that's our number one focus. We're already seeing like how people are using this, forming on the fly teams to attack different types of projects. Like those things are already emerging, but we're just laser focused on making sure that we provide the best experience for for you know a highly skilled technical talent to match with a you know a global enterprise that needs them and and make sure that that is as seamless and frictionless as possible from the point at which a job gets posted to when they get matched to when they, you know, interview them with one click, hire them, handling the payments and and all the compliance and global, like global remittance. Um, 
you know, we're just really focused on, on delivering a, a, a great opportunity there. Gabe, my last question to you is, uh, we've talked about uh, a lot of different things that are emergent. How do you track this space? How do you track the future of work? How do you track the future of talent management and, and matching and marketplaces? Where, where do you go? You are, like you pointed out, one of the few that has this expertise on a commercial and investment scale and now uh, you know, on having implemented m many of these platforms too. Yeah, I following you that, on Twitter, yeah. you know, but wh wh where else do you do you go to to learn about these emerging uh, trends around marketplaces? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think that we're kind of at the intersection of three things, right? We're we're at the intersection of kind of future of work. Um, we're also it, with marketplaces and blockchain, right? So that would be like the Venn diagram is the combination of those three things, and there's not a not a whole lot of folks or, or people sitting in the middle of that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, related to future work, I think the World Economic uh, Forum is doing an amazing job. We actually just had Sheila Warren on uh, uh, on our podcast, uh, Brain Trust, uh, usebraintrust.com backslash podcast. Um, we have leaders that are future work leaders. Um, we have blockchain experts come on and, and we also have marketplace builders and investors come on. So we actually really like our podcast just explores the intersection of those three things. Of where capital and and uh, you know and, and work and and technology meet, um, so I would that I would say is, that's what we explore every single day, and I encourage people to to check out the podcast. I'm gonna link I'm gonna link up all your uh, all your activities, Gabe. So not to worry. Thank you so much for sharing your uh, your experience. Wish you best of luck with Brain Trust, and uh, I hope you can come back. We'll have uh, you know maybe some seminars and uh, have some group discussions on. On this intersection, it's uh, actually a great idea for a podcast to, to try to see if there's two more people like you who are willing to to actually talk about the intersection of future work, marketplace, and uh, blockchain. We'll, we'll see if they exist. Fantastic. Well, happy to help curate a uh, curate a panel. Thank you so much for having me on and, and for the work that you're doing to, uh, to, to spread new ideas around the world. You're welcome. Uh, it was exciting to have you. Have a great rest of the day. Take care. You have just listened to episode 78 of the Futurized podcast with host Ronarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was next generation marketplaces. Our guest was Gabriel Luna Ostraseski, the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Braintrust, the first user-controlled talent network. In this conversation, we talk about next generation marketplaces and the results from building and investing in first, second and third generation marketplaces. Is blockchain overhyped? Emerging marketplaces with non-extractive externalities and truly sharing control and ownership. The path and possible endpoints of decentralization in the next decade and beyond. My takeaway is that next generation marketplaces that favor the users as opposed to corporations are rare, but increasingly important for the marketplace concept to survive. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 52 on the future of peer-to-peer, -peer, episode 66 on serendipity of social innovation, episode 49 on living the future of work, or episode 73 on the future is social learning. Futurized, preparing you 
to deal with disruption.